Well, good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Numbers 16, 41 to 50. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. This is God's word. Most journeys don't involve going in a straight line from point A to point B. There are usually twists and turns along the way. Sometimes we blow it and have to make a fresh start. So how can we get it right in our journey with Christ? There is a book in the Old Testament that can really help. There are some mornings when I am daunted by the prospect of sharing with you because I feel so inadequate to communicate something that to me, I don't know if you've seen it, but in this passage, it's breathtaking what is happening. And so... I need to talk to the Lord with you. Shall we do that? Father, I am desperate for you to communicate to your people this morning. I pray that the scales would fall from our eyes and we would see what is happening and what has happened um, the way you want us to and that we would be forever changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So far, we have learned some principles in our journey through the book of Numbers. We've learned that God is our difference maker. Uh, If we have God on our side, it's amazing what we can do. And if we don't, it's amazing how catastrophic and swift will be our failure. We've learned that God's grace is our protection, that God's gifts are good. When he gives a gift, it's something to be treasured. It's something valuable. We've learned... Choose the easy way. You know, God has a lesson for us. And we don't get to choose whether we're going to learn that lesson, but we do get to choose whether we learn it the easy way or the hard way. So choose the easy way. And we've learned that brokenness, we saw this last week, is good. This morning, I would like to introduce you to another principle called brace for grace. I realize you might not quite understand that yet, but you will before the time we're done. Can you imagine what it was like when Jesus cleansed the temple, which he actually did two times? 
he came to the temple early in his ministry and what he saw just lit zeal for God. He made, it says, according to one of the passages that recounts this, he made a scourge of cords. Can you imagine Jesus making basically a whip? And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. That's quite a stunning picture, isn't it, of Jesus? Why? Well, because instead of praying, this place was to be a house of prayer, the temple, particularly the region where they were setting up shop. But instead of it being a, a prayer center, they turned it into a profit center. They were using God as cover to fleece the flock. And in such a moment, I'm reminded of an image from the movie Sully in which the uh, flight attendants are saying, you know, brace, brace, because they're going to brace for impact. That's what I would have told Israel <laughs> when Jesus came. Brace for impact. And Jesus used a whip and overturned tables and drove them out. Now there are countless instances when rebellion against God invites judgment where we would warn, brace for impact. Sodom and Gomorrah come to mind. I ran across, uh, my son sent it to me, a link to an article in which they have found a layer of material in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah that could only have been caused by an exploding asteroid and it's melted all kinds of things together. It's powerful evidence. I would say to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is <laughs> brace for impact. But there are also times when we should brace for impact when instead God decides to show grace. And we're bracing for impact, and it turns out we're braced for grace. This is one of those passages this morning. You know, there are those who like to talk about the fact that the, the book of the Old Testament is about the law, and grace is in the New Testament. And I would just say, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all through both Testaments. And this passage we're going to look at this morning is one of the most poignant and powerful testaments to the grace of God that I know of in the whole Bible. Certainly the cross is that, but this is runner-up. It's amazing what we're going to unpack. Now, in order to understand the passage that Cricket read, we need to go back in time 24 hours. We need to understand what had happened in the day prior to this day that she read about. And that day we could call the day of Korah's rebellion, which the balance of chapter 16 is about that. Verses 1 through 40 are basically telling us about the day of Korah's rebellion. And we're going to do a little study of that, but just in a summary way, because that provides the framework in order for us to understand what happened in the verses that Cricket read, which is the day after in Numbers chapter 16, verses 41 through 50. And in that section, 
we'll see how blame casting fogs the mirror. You can't see the real problem. We'll see what Israel deserves, and then we'll see what a godly intercessor accomplishes. So let's first back up the clock to 24 hours before and try and understand what happened. And I invite you later today to read chapter 16, the whole thing, so that you understand what happened in the day before. Now, in this section, the day of Korah's rebellion, there are actually two grumpy groups. Grumpy group number one starts with four individuals who have basically decided they're gonna have a bad attitude which spreads to 250 well-known men. And this group of 250 says to Moses and to Aaron, you have gone too far, Moses and Aaron. And they're basically saying, you've elevated yourself when we ought to be up there too. Now, this group that was coming to him, they have a very esteemed position. They are a part of the temple service but they aspire to climb one rung further. Yes, God has honored us and given us a privileged position, but, but we want one more rung in the ladder. And they actually dress up their ambition to sound spiritual. They say, all God's people are holy. Why shouldn't we be? Moses said to them, you have gone too far. They said to Moses, you know, you've gone too far by elevating yourself when in fact God had chosen him at a burning bush. But he says, you're going too far. But okay, grumpy group number one, 250 of you, report for duty as priests tomorrow and we'll see what God wants to do. Grumpy group number two Two key figures are Dathan and Abiram. And they're complaining because they believe that Moses has tricked them. Moses has appointed himself the prince of a death march. They're basically blaming Moses and Aaron for the fact that they are wandering in the wilderness. Now, whose fault was that? <laughs> Not Moses and Aaron. That was their fault but they're blaming him for that. And they're saying, you're responsible for this. You're the one who made this happen. Now, both of these groups, grumpy group number one and grumpy group number two, don't see the real problem, which is staring back from the mirror. All they have to do to see the real problem is look in the mirror. But instead, what they're saying is, it's not enough, God. And they're mad at God. So God says, option one, total do-over. You know, wipe them out. And Moses and Aaron appeal to God and say, please don't judge all for the failure of some. And God says, okay. And God proposes the congregation declare themselves by putting some distance between themselves and the grumpies. And so he says, go ahead, pull back from them and thereby indicate they're not speaking for me. So they do that. Now, these people, grumpy group number one, 250 of them, and grumpy group number two, Korah and his crew, they don't recognize that pride and anger against God and disappointment with God and resentment toward God 
is going to lead to an outcome. It, it won't turn out well. They're blaming God. It's packaged as blame for Moses, but they're really blaming God for not blessing them enough to satisfy, satisfy their ego. That's group number one. Or for consequences of their own making. That's group number two. They're in the wilderness by choice. What happened? And again, you can read the chapter to see what happened. But the 250 come before the Lord with censors. They're reporting for duty as priests. And they are totally consumed by fire. What happens to Korah and his group, grumpy group number two? And, and Moses said, everybody, if, unless you agree with them, step aside. And then this to me is so amazing. The earth opens up and swallows them whole and they go directly to Sheol. <laughs> I, I'm not meaning to laugh because it's a laughable thing. I just, I'm laughing about what would you think if you were one of the ones who witnessed this? Here are those who are mad at God and they've either been dealt with by fire or being swallowed by the earth. Well, what would be your posture? Yes, God, uh, what you want me to do? I'm in, I'm in, I'm good. What, 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 what do you want me to do? <laughs> right? I would be on my best behavior. But that's not what we discover a mere 24 hours later. This is what is so stunning to me. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel, notice all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and saying, you're the ones who've caused the death of the Lord's people. You're responsible. You did this. I'm reminded of the movie. It's now on its 25th anniversary, but I can't help but think as I'm listening to them, inconceivable. All the congregation is grumbling against Moses and Aaron when you don't recognize these people were responsible for what happened by their anger and hostility toward God. That's where the cause lies, not with Moses and Aaron. This people, these people are taking up an offense for Korah. We're mad at you for what you did for Korah. Does that make sense on any level? And they blame Mo Moses. You're the cause. Wait, wait, wait. Let's replay the tape from that previous 24 hours, okay? Who was it when God said, I'm going to wipe them all out? Who was it that said, God, don't, don't judge the innocent because of the failure of a few. Moses and Aaron stood in the gap for them. <laughs> They're actually mad at Moses, who was the one who actually was their advocate. They're mad at God, but they're expressing it by being mad at his servants, which, by the way, is not uncommon. I need to make one important distinction. The people are complaining, and some might say, well, isn't this just like a psalm of lament? And the answer is no. 
In a psalm of lament in which you're acknowledging that things are bad, you don't blame God. And that's where they went, went wrong. They are blind to their real problem. Now, this is the people now. This is not Korah. This is not grumpy group number one and two. They're gone. But now Israel is failing to recognize that they are actually, by their response to God, they're mad at God and they're mad at Moses, his representative. They're courting their own distinction. Have you ever taken up an offense for someone else or been mad at God? What should they have done? Learn from Korah's example. <laughs> You're going to end up being swallowed by the earth if that's the posture you take. What's next? It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. So while they're in this conversation, basically saying, you're the problem here, Moses, you're the problem, Aaron, that God shows up at the tent of meeting. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. God, isn't that what we just avoided yesterday? Yes, but yesterday they were willing to at least separate themselves from a certain group, but now they've chosen to advocate for the same posture and policy. Israel deserves nothing less than instant annihilation. That's what they deserve for the rebellion against God. They're saying, we want nothing to do with you, God. Well, God, who is the source of life, what you're saying is, I don't want life. That's what they're saying. God's wrath is on the move. Israel, brace for impact. God advises Moses and Aaron to put distance between themselves and the people. They're saying God's a liability, not an asset. And that is putting their very lives at risk. Here's what happened next. And this is what, if once you understand it, just takes my breath away. Referring to Moses and Aaron, then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put it in, uh, in fire from the altar. Lay incense on it, then bring it quickly for the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has come forth from the Lord, the plague has begun. Then Aaron took it, as Moses had spoken, and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living, so that the plague was checked. For those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of a Korah, which is the day before. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. I want you to imagine, and this is not difficult because of a recent event that occurred in the South Pacific. Imagine a tidal wave, 100 feet tall, that is about to wash over an island. And I'm going to do what you're not supposed to do uh, at, as a when I'm talking to the congregation, but I'm gonna turn my back to you, okay? So imagine that there is a wave coming 
that we are at the beach facing forward. And then imagine a single person running to the beach as the wave approaches and standing at the shore with but a, a stick with a candle on the top of it. Now you see this wave, and it's 100 feet tall, which is about three times the height of this ceiling, okay? And it is coming. And this person stands, and in that moment, the power of the wave just dissipates. You were braced for impact. And instead, God poured out grace, and you ended up bracing for grace. That's what happened in this instance. Now, in the spiritual realm, it is possible to actually decide whether to accept or reject the work of an intercessor. But doing so, if you decide, he's not, he's not my representative, then brace for impact. If you say, I identify with him, Brace for grace. And what amazing grace was shown to Israel because of the actions of one man. I love this statement from E.H. Merrill. The day before, 250 men had brought censers <laughs> before the Lord and it accomplished nothing. Here, one man, one man comes with a censer, and he actually positions himself. Here's this advancing plague. 14,700 have already died, and he stands between that advancing plague, one man with a censer and incense, which is a way of expressing prayer to God, an appeal and a plea to God. One man is saying, God, please show us grace. Merrill says, since incense was symbolic of prayer, Aaron, in effect, was appearing among the people to intercede in prayer for them. It must have been clear to all that one censer in the hand of a man of God far excelled 250 in the hands of that many sinners. What's going on here? This is a picture of what Jesus does. This picture that Aaron is presenting is really giving us an illustration about what goes on as it pertains to us. We deserve nothing less than judgment. God's wrath will be on the move someday in the future. But God has appointed Jesus as our intercessor and as our high priest. He stands before us between death and life. And his protection is a supreme act of grace. The former priests, according to Hebrews 7, it says this, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Did you catch that? Someday Aaron died. But Jesus, who is our intercessor between death and life never dies. There will never come a moment 
when Jesus is not prepared to be our intercessor who is saying, give these people grace. They deserve judgment because they are sinners, but give them grace. And he ever lives. He continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he does. There's two ways to draw near to God. One way, Israel's way, is to draw near to God to call him to account. Or we can draw near to God to plead for grace. God, don't give me what I deserve. Give me what grace provides. You can come to God and say, God, you're a disappointment. You haven't come through. Or you can come to God saying, Jesus, you are my hope, my refuge. Israel came before God depending on themselves. We come before God depending on who Jesus is. It's all about him and what he has done. And they receive judgment, brace for impact. We receive grace, brace for grace. We're told... Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our intercessor stands forever, saying, I want these people to experience grace. And when you've experienced God's grace, you want to come for more because, because you realize that's what makes the difference. I need more grace. Because Jesus is our intercessor, we can, through him, ask for more mercy and more grace. Now, mercy, the difference between these two words in the Hebrews passage, mercy is grace for those in hardship or trouble. Are you in hardship or trouble? Do you want to plead for what you think you deserve or do you want to plead for mercy? We have an intercessor who has shown us amazing, saving grace. Go ask him for more. You can. Grace is help for those facing challenges or limitations. And as long as Jesus is standing before us, and by the way, he is indestructible, according to another verse in Hebrews, we who trust him have full access to God's grace. Everyone in this room, if Jesus is your savior and your intercessor, then you are thereby authorized to come before the throne of grace and say, I need mercy in order to face this. I need grace in order to overcome this obstacle. So how do you brace for grace? And I'm actually, I, I might change the wording on this a little bit into how do you embrace grace? Ask boldly for mercy. If you are in need, come before the throne and say, God, would you please provide mercy? Ask boldly for grace, his undeserved kindness, especially to those who are in a mess of their own making. If you've messed up, Come before him and say, God, would you please pour out your grace on me? Banish the language of merit. <laughs> I'm not asking because I deserve this, but simply because Jesus bids me ask for grace and mercy. 
God was gracious to Israel despite what they deserved. So stunning. God wants us to do likewise. What'd you say, Jim? Did I just hear you right? You want me to show grace to others as an emblem of the fact that I have been shown such grace? Jim, you don't know what kind of world we live in. You don't know the kind of people that I'm around. I'm not saying this. Jesus is. But I say to you, love your enemies. That's grace. Pray for those who persecute you. That's grace. So that you may be sons of your Father is in, in heaven, so that you'll demonstrate the family resemblance between you, the giver of grace. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's who God is. God wants all who have braced for grace or embraced grace to throw grace. Have you received grace? Give it. Listen to this passage, Ephesians 4. He says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. We of all people who have been shown such amazing grace need to be fluent in the language of grace. We live in a world where we think that the fact that we're right, and if we're speaking what the scriptures say we are, that that ought to make the world want to listen to us. Well, they think they're right too. <laughs> but we can show grace in a world where that is a foreign object, and then we stand out. Why does God show grace? Why did God show grace to Israel in that moment? Why do we show grace to people in the world who don't deserve it? <laughs> Never mind the fact that it's because grace is about ministering good to those who don't deserve it. Here's why God does it. He actually tells us, you want to know why I do this grace thing? Here you go. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the, get this now, kindness of God leads you to repentance. Why did God show grace to Israel? Because he wanted to give them every advantage to see what's in the mirror that is their true problem and repent. Why does God give us grace? So that we'll repent. What do we do when we give grace to an ungracious world? We give them every advantage to come to repentance. We're being like Father. And when we impart grace to other people, we make it easier for the recipient to repent too, even if that person does not know God. I've been in several churches the last few years. Uh, Rochelle and I talk about kind of the gypsy chapter of our life. For the last seven years, we've moved eight times as we've gone to different churches. And uh, right as I came to a church, uh, actually just a week or two before, the current youth pastor resigned. At the same time, a previous family pastor announced that the two of them were planning to start a church down the street 
at the local high school and they were uh, going to do so by promoting this new church among the members of the church I was going to. So we got a couple options. One would be to have animosity. The other would be to throw grace. We have been shown such grace, we will extend it to others. This is what we do, this is who we are. I'm gonna tell you about another church. Now, I don't know what to make of the fact that several of the churches I've gone to, this has been an, a theme, but uh, at the last church I was at, I, was, I came to that church because it was facing a toxic staff culture. Uh, 15 of their staff, a number of them pastors, had all resigned. And uh, many of them uh, were gathered together uh, to take a, uh, this would be a large mega church with multiple campuses in the state where I was. They wanted them to open a campus in the same town where I was and they were going to in turn take a group of people uh, from the mother church that wasn't planting the church, they were just mad at the church, but they were gonna go do their thing. So what do we do? And my call was, we have received incredible grace. How can we not extend grace to others, including those that the world might tell us, these are your competition? So what we did, and I, I brought this out because I thought it'd be kind of interesting. So this, these are the, now this is a little bit extended. <laughs> these are the sermon notes from the sermon in which we talked about, this is not the opposition when Jesus had, uh, gave some fishing counsel and the disciples had a boat full, what did they do? They said, we need more boats. Frankly, there are way more non-believers in our community, and it's true here as well. We don't have enough churches. So we invited the pastor of that church before he started the church. We invited him to come. And I preached a sermon that was about 12 principles for imparting grace to a new church. And then we had him come up and his wife and our elders had a time of uh, blessing them and basically praying for them as they started this new work. Why? Because that's what we do when we impart grace to one another. Those who have embraced grace throw grace. Who do you know that uh, has hurt you? made your life difficult, it's been a challenge, has said things that are hurtful, has slandered you. This is something we can do that the world cannot, which is because of the incredible grace we have received, we can throw grace. We can be gracious. Listen to this passage. This is 1 Peter 4, 10. And this passage has often been understood of something that is too small. It says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now when it says special gift, uh, you're probably not seeing what's there in the original language. Uh, he says, I have to, I'm going to give you a lesson in Greek here for a minute, okay? The word grace in Greek is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. 
And we have been shown incredible charis from God. When it says, as each one has received a special gift, that is, listen closely, charisma, which means expression of grace. Now, it's been translated as if that refers to a particular talent or ability. That's too small. Basically, what it's saying is every time God gives you grace or a grace gift, figure out how you can be a good steward of grace and impart grace to others. That's who we are. That's what we're about. Use grace received as propellant for grace given. God wants us to do what he did to Israel. He showed them incredible grace, and he did so by giving us a picture of what Jesus does for us. He stands in the gap so that we could receive grace. Everyone in this room who names the name of Jesus, Jesus is standing in the gap and will for all eternity because he's indestructible and make sure that nothing but grace is what you experience. Then how can we do any less in our relationship with others than to throw grace just as we've received it? Whom do you know who's done wrong by you? Been a hassle to work with, stabbed you in the back, disappointed you, opposed you, slandered you. Yes, they should brace for impact if we were to respond to them the way the world responds. But you have received such amazing grace. Show the same to them. And you will make it easier for them to embrace the one who is the giver of incredible saving grace and protection. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are a people who are going to go before the Lord and say, God, show me grace. Give me grace. Not what I deserve. Show me your goodness in all things so that I can in turn show grace to other people. I like to refer to this as right angle grace. God gives us grace so that we can give grace to others. This is a part of our mission. This is a part of who we are. And he gave us this bold picture of it when we saw Aaron standing in the gap and God through that intercessor who's a picture of Jesus giving grace to his people. Now we need to go do the same. So I'm going to pray for us, but before I do, I want you to put someone's face in your mind. It could be someone that you work with it could be a neighbor, could be a fellow student, but they're making it hard. They're making your life tough. Maybe there's a particular incident you can think of in which they did not do right by you. Maybe they slandered you to others. I don't know what it is. But we need God to guide us so that we can be a people who are known for the fact that we are fluent in the language of grace. So what I want to do is I want you to picture that person's face in your mind, whoever it is, and then I want to pray for you. Can you do that? Okay, bow your heads and put that person's face in your mind, all right? Father, we have been shown such amazing grace 
from you. And we have been given the privilege, it's, it's a grace privilege, to come to you and ask for more grace and more mercy. And know that we are heard because Jesus is our everlasting intercessor who makes it possible for us to come boldly to the throne of grace. Father, right now in this room, there are people who have fixed in their mind the face of someone who by right of what they've done should brace for impact. Show us how we can communicate grace to them in a way where they catch a glimpse of what you have done through your son for us. Father, whether it's words or not saying those words we've been thinking about or certain actions, whatever it is, I pray I'm pleading with you to show grace to your people right now by giving them wisdom and guidance into how they can communicate with people in a way that shouts loudly the grace of God that prompts them to say, I want to know, I want to understand how you're doing this and allows us to share with them how it is possible to know the God of all grace who has sought to save us despite who we are and what we have done. Father, I pray that you would give every person in this room, every person in this room, an opportunity this week to, refer, to return grace for evil and gracious words for unkindness and slander. Show them how to do that this week, that we might come next week celebrating the ways in which grace has flowed through us to others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.